All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, introducing James Carden from the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. They changed the name so that they could make a cool acronym out of it. Acura. And uh, the point being that instead of having a Cold War and then maybe a really, really, really hot war with Russia, we should get along instead. Welcome back. How you doing, James? I'm good. And fortunately, we haven't gotten sued from the car company yet. That's but very good to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe you can get them to sponsor your efforts, you know? That would be nice. Russia's be a, nice a big market there, you know? Sell some Acuras yeah. instead right. of exploding people. Yeah. Anyway. Um, what a concept. Yeah. Hey, listen, so we got this new thing, AUKUS. Speaking of weird acronyms. Um, and this is the new alliance between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. And, um, well, just as an aside, I wanted to point out, I don't know if you ever saw this, but um, there's a great clip of John Mearsheimer giving a speech in Australia that Caitlin Johnstone tweeted out last week. And Mearsheimer is saying, you better line up with us or you guys are in big trouble. And we'll never forget it. If, and if you don't line up with us, then that's the same as aligning with China against us and you'll make an enemy out of us and all these things. And so John Stone says, listen, Australia is not joining up with the U.S. to protect itself from China. Australia is joining up with the U.S. to protect itself from the U.S. And which sure seemed right to me. So, um then that means as part of that, they have joined up this new alliance or a renewed alliance, I guess, with um, the United States and Britain and at the expense of the French who were lined up to sell some submarines to Australia and I guess right before the deal was to go through, uh, they made this change and then the change comes with the uh, Australians buying nuclear-powered submarines from the United States instead of the French. So... That's the background, but then you've got this great piece here at uh, usrussiaaccord.org about the silver lining. That, hey, great, tensions inside NATO, right? Maybe this would be productive toward ending America's European empire? Well, that's sort of the, well, how, that, that's sort of the hope. Um, that's, I speculate um, that um, Macron's anger over the over the deal um, of being betrayed by his Australian partners and being really kept in the dark by the U.S. and U.K. Um, will have him rethink and enact on his um, often expressed reservations about about the NATO uh, alliance. Macron is a rare figure in the West in that he actually seems inclined not to go with the talking points uh, with regard to NATO. And um, he has previously described the 
alliance as as having experienced brain death, uh, among other things. Um, and Macron's uh, views on NATO um, are not dissimilar uh, to those of um, his his kind of his presidential model uh, in France, and that would be um, President uh, Charles de Gaulle, who. Um, was a was such a critic of NATO that he uh, threw all of the NATO forces out of out of his country in the mid '60s. So, um, one would hope that this incident, um, it, embarrassing as it was uh, to the French, that um, perhaps it'll spur uh, Macron um, to uh, rethink um, the value of. Of that of that alliance, which has long outlived um, its its uh, its sell by date, if you will. Yeah, got that right. Well, so let me ask you this: When France was selling these subs to the Australians, was there a narrative that yeah, this is to protect you in the new Cold War with China, or just hey, you guys want to buy some submarines and we'll we'll do a deal, but without the kind of global foreign policy kind of thing going on too? Yeah, I. I I didn't. They. It didn't seem to me that they, they were selling submarines and a military alliance designed to encircle um, and isolate China. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it. It seems as though the UK and American um, subs um, did come with those strings very much attached, and so the press conference uh, that was held um, between. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, uh, the buffoonish Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, um, and our own um, America's granddad, Joseph Biden, uh, they all, um, the, the, the theme of the, of the announcement really was uh, this new so-called strategic alliance in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and I might be mistaken about this. I'm not sure that they actually said the word China uh, during the during the rollout, but clearly uh, that's what it is aimed for. And I'm glad that you brought up John Mearsheimer at the top because um, his his book, um, The uh, Tragedy of Great Power Politics, um, ends with a long discussion of the rise of China. And in a nutshell. Mearsheimer, who is always worth uh, listening to, um, posits that China's rise uh, will not and and cannot uh, be peaceful, not so much uh, because they have um, designs on uh, world domination, but he fears America's reaction to it um, far more than what the Chinese are are actually, actually up to. Uh, so he really pins the if it's not going to rise peacefully, um, his thesis is that it's going to be because of the overreaction in Washington. And I think that the creation of AUKUS is um, is is bearing that out. Mm. So in other words, that clip of his speech, he's basically saying that America is such a irrational and dangerous creature you Australians should help me calm it down by joining its alliance now so that it doesn't feel so insecure about China to maybe help to keep the peace rather than make matters worse. 
yeah, I think that's the way I would read it. Interesting. I hadn't heard or seen that clip before, but I need to. I uh, yeah, I mean, he's being pretty harsh in that clip, but I could see how it. You know, it's not the whole context. I haven't seen the whole speech, but um, in a way, the way he's talking, he's speaking for the United States of America. But that could be just like a rhetorical thing, rather than I, he's you know really just saying you boys better fall in line because I say so on behalf of the U.S. kind of thing. You know, it's. Yeah. But I could see what you mean. Um, now. Well, it's interesting, too, and I wonder about whether you hear much of this, about all of China's problems. I mean, they're building up their naval power in the South China Sea and all of this, but, um, you know, they have all kinds of economic problems, uh, as we're seeing right now with the beginning of the collapse of their housing market and things like this. And, you know, I already knew this, but I hadn't really thought about it in this way. I keep bringing this up. I did a panel discussion that was... um, uh, hosted or whatever, moderated by Grover Norquist at Freedom Fest a couple of months ago. And he rattled off all of the countries on China's border or, you know, surrounding them, right near them. You know, Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam, and well, Taiwan for that matter, Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and India and Pakistan and Russia, and I'm probably leaving out a couple, you know, we have Canada and Mexico and water. They've got like 10 countries on their border, eight countries or something on their border that they have to have a separate foreign policy for each one to try to figure out, you know, how to balance all these interests. And as I rattle all those names off, if I were to ask you which one of those countries is Taiwan or is uh, uh, China going to invade and conquer, Taiwan is probably the only one, right? Oh, I left out Outer Mongolia. Like, nobody thinks they're going to roll into the stands in, West, in, in Central Asia. Nobody thinks they're going to invade Japan or Korea or Vietnam or any of these things. They might take Taiwan, which would be, you know, a huge flashpoint in danger of war. But it seems to me like the whole dangerous rise of China in the first place is vastly overblown. It's, it's sort of like based on the presumption that they're going to continue with the exact same level of growth that they've had since 1990 to now forever without problems right. or something. Well, and that people, they share America's ambitions for global dominance, for that matter. Right. Well, that's the key. I mean, uh, you, you, you were saying that no one really believes that you know, China is set to roll through the stands. I'm fairly certain that we could find some maniacs on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington where all the think tanks are located and find a bunch of people who, who actually uh, believe that or are making their living on uh, pretending that, um, that China is some sort of um, military, uh, military threat um, in the region, just as a lot of these people have made their careers on pretending that the Russians are about to roll through Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, and, and the rest of it. Um, so there is this kind of um, conflation with their economic rise and um, their supposed um, geopolitical uh, designs. Uh, these people uh, seem to forget that um, China has one foreign uh, military base, right? Um, we have uh, roughly 750, uh, by some estimates, maybe even 800 military bases worldwide. They have one, and it is in uh, Djibouti. So um, 
you know, the arguments are, uh, I find them fairly unpersuasive, which isn't to say that uh, the Chinese are not bad actors in, in certain discrete areas. Uh, they are, but it, it, the, the kind of containment 2.0 new Cold War approach towards China it seems um, silly because it it depends upon the cooperation of a lot of those countries that you just named um, taking part uh, those countries on China's border. The problem is is that those very same countries do the vast amount of trade with China, right? So it would be sort of a um, unprecedented uh, historical um, occurrence where you have a country reliant on, um, you know, you have a country like Vietnam that is almost completely reliant on trade with China, but then they're going to decide to join a military alliance aimed against China, right? It doesn't seem like it's been really well well thought out, but that isn't su- surprising given Washington's um, proclivity um, not to think things out. Right. All right. Sorry. Hang on a second. Important business here. I was telling my friend, man, you drink too much. You know, it's causing all these other problems. Just smoke weed instead. It's way better for you. And now you can get good smoke in the mail and it's totally legal just about everywhere in America. It turns out there's a cannabinoid isomer called Delta 8 which is perfectly legal and still gives you that nice little old reverse headache kind of feeling you're used to getting from your guy. Check it out at thehempspot.com, but spell the T-H-C, thehempspot.com. Now double check into the legality in your state, but you should be good. Thehempspot.com is shipping everywhere in America. And during their grand opening through July, use coupon code Horton and get 30% off. And a 10% commission will be paid to the Scott Horton Show for every order using that coupon code. And free shipping on any order over $90. Get your Delta 8 THC cannabis at thehempspot.com. But write THC for thee. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Mike Swanson's great book, The War State. It's about the rise of the military-industrial complex and the power elite after World War II during the administrations of Harry Truman Dwight Eisenhower, and Jack Kennedy. It's a very enlightening take on this definitive era on America's road to world empire. The War State by Mike Swanson. Find it in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org. You know, it's funny too, I mean, I guess if you start out with the premise of paranoia, then you go, oh no, the Belt and Road Initiative. China is going to conquer all of Eurasia. They're going to take their million man army and they're just going to march it west and they're going to end up ruling all the way from Shanghai to Lisbon or whatever. That's the the plan for the road. But it seems like, I mean, geez, if you just look at a map of the world or a globe with the proper proportions and everything, China's huge, but it's still only what, like a eighth of Eurasia or a fifth of it or something like that. That's a lot of Eurasia to conquer if you're China. And it seems like if you really want to build a road and a high, uh, you know, a railway and a fiber optic line and everything all the way from Shanghai to Lisbon, that you're going to have to kiss everybody's ass all the way to Portugal. 
rather than threatening them and pointing rifles at them. Because that's a lot of road to secure, man. You're going to need friends to help keep the peace on your road. Or else, you know, who's going to protect the quickie marts on the side of the road from the highway robbers, you know? Well, right. I mean, their foreign policy seems to be based more on um, soft power and more on um, economics into dependence theory, right? Um, they seem to believe that the more uh, trade that they do with countries, the better their relations will be, and perhaps the more leverage they have. Right? They don't. They don't really seem to buy into this um, Anglo-American tradition of hard power, military invasion, regime change, above all. Um, and you know this strategy of isolating them and containing them um, is in the process of, of backfiring fairly spectacularly because the policy of containing and isolating and making into a pariah state um, the Russian Federation has driven uh, the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. And these are um, historically uh, adversarial states. And um, now, uh, with the dual containment policy, what we're in the process of making is um, a very uh, a, a solid um, alliance, um, a pragmatic one, um, between uh, Russia and China. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's something um, that um, will redound re to our, our benefit. Yeah, I mean, this is something I remember talking about with Chalmers Johnson back what, 15 years ago or something. Was here the Europeans were, you know, launching this giant weapons sale, uh, you know, a whole program of weapons sales to China. And Chalmers Johnson said, you know, in the Cold War, this was our ultimate nightmare would be a, you know, Paris, Berlin, Moscow, Beijing axis, right? Like, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Now, this is what we're doing. With, you know, the American and Anglo alliance essentially attacking Iraq in the way that they were doing then and, and the way Rumsfeld was, uh, you know, alienating old Europe in favor of new Europe, as he called it there. They, you know, promoting the East over the old West. And, I mean, certainly the Sino-Soviet split and its exploitation by Nixon back 50 years ago was regarded as this brilliant achievement right, that, you know, the, the foreign policy establishment had mistakenly, accidentally, on purpose, continued to believe that Beijing and Moscow were eye-to-eye -eye on everything for all of that time since Mao had taken power, when it really wasn't true. And all it took was a little bit of creativity on Kissinger's part, and they were able to not just exploit, but really accentuate that split between Russia and China. And it seems like now... In their arrogance, essentially, they're just pushing them all back together again. Well, forget the Europeans for now, but especially the the uh, Russians and the um, and the Chinese. When, if you asked Henry Kissinger, we should be choosing one over the other to balance against the other, right? There was even at one point Trump said, "You know, I went and talked to Henry Kissinger, and he told me that we should be leaning toward Russia to balance against China right now." And then everyone decided, no, Trump is a secret, you know, FSB spy is the far more likely explanation for him saying nice things about Russia. When really that was what he was being told by, you know, the grayest of graybeards is that we, we should not be, you know, 
hyping up our Cold War against both at the same time because the last thing in the world we want is for them to put aside all differences and join back together again against us. Which I got to say, I don't care either way, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's right. So that's the, that's the, the, the danger of the, of the dual containment uh, policy that Washington in, insists on, uh, regardless of party. Uh, they insist on on following, and um, there are very few uh, voices uh, here. Um, maybe outside of, I don't know, Rand Paul, uh, perhaps on the right, and then on the left, someone like Ro Khanna um, and Barbara Lee, who are um, realistic enough and perhaps you know wise enough to be uh, warning against. Uh, this this pursuit of uh, of a of a new cold war, a two front cold war, yeah. um, that seems to be all the rage right now um, in Washington. Yeah. And by the way, I should be clear: when I say I don't care, it's because they're not coming here, right? If they ally against us, all that would mean is they'd be limiting our government's influence in the old world, which I don't object to because America shouldn't have any influence in the old world anyway. So that's all I'm saying there. It's not like they're a real yeah, threat. If it came like, to a war, then yeah, I'm on America's side, but you know what I mean. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it goes back again to, um, uh, to, to Mearsheimer, right? Um, Mearsheimer's um, thesis is that um, China's goal really is to become a regional hegemon, right? Um, and that the United States, for whatever reason, reasons of ideology, mainly, I would, I think, um, will not will not allow that to happen. But I don't see any real reason why we shouldn't. Uh, we're we're obviously uh, for the past oh thirty years we've been trying to become a global hegemon, but that has proved to be you know utterly impossible. Um, but we certainly, uh, in the absence of that, uh, will always be the regional. Hegemon, and um, um, you know the the you know European Union um, and and Russia right now are um, in a competition, and the United States is deeply involved in this competition. So you will be the regional hegemon there, and obviously China is going to emerge as as its own uh, regional uh, leader. And um, there there should be very multipolarity where you have a world with different uh, spheres of influence and different and different poles um, should not be something that we are uh, that we that we should be afraid of uh, but it terrifies all those people who I mentioned earlier on Massachusetts Avenue in Northwest Washington um, uh, the you know they still have these uh, you know unipolar uh, pretensions um, that that date back to the uh, end of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War in the in the early 1990s. Yeah. Now, so back to NATO here, real quick. Um, you know, I'm sure you saw this. We probably talked about it at the time last November, where the New York Times ran this story about how at NATO they did this big study about how after losing the Afghan War, which was as I quote him in my book, saying, this is a team-building exercise for NATO. It's one of the main reasons to have an Afghan war. It's something we can do together. Call it international greatness. Um, <laughs> but now that that's over, 
they go, oh no, we need a new sacred mission, <laughs> right? Joe Biden says, our commitment to NATO is sacred. And at the same time that they say, we don't have a reason to exist. And so they launched a big study group, probably spent millions of American tax dollars studying what should be the new purpose for NATO. Because I guess they can't get the Germans and the French to even pretend to believe that the Russians are coming at all. And so, according to the New York Times, shifting focus, NATO views China as global security challenge for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Well, it's a you know, it's obviously absurd. And the organization is experiencing not only brain death, as Emmanuel Macron has uh, pointed out, it's uh, severely overextended. Uh, and so, you know, you re one recalls Walter Lippmann's warning about alliances that, you know, they're, they're like a chain. They're only as strong as their weakest link. Well, if that's true, uh, then it's not much of a security alliance at all if we're, if we're dead set on bringing in countries like Montenegro into it. Um, so uh, NATO is really, uh, it poses a severe national security uh, threat to the, to the United States because it empowers uh, states to uh, try to attempt to punch above their weight. And right. it empowers them to act uh, recklessly uh, and, and provocatively. Um, and we've seen that with states who aren't members, but who have even who've been merely, you know, promised membership. Uh, here I have in mind. And that um, goes for Jer America, too, right? The Americans act as though they have all of Europe with them when they really don't. If it came to oh, a real war with Russia, they would all sit it out. Oh, certainly. Well, you know, except the, <laughs> maybe in the Baltics where they'd get the worst of it or something. But Right. So, um, again, so the strategy, uh, the NATO uh, strategy uh, has not been working for... Uh, roughly 30 years, um, I don't see any reason why we would try to duplicate that strategy in the so-called Indo-Pacific region, but that's what the Biden administration seems intent on, on doing. Yeah. Now, so what kind of, um, of trouble do you think that they've really caused with the French here? Do you think it'll really help to undermine the alliance? Uh, I'm sort of not that hopeful. <laughs> so no, I don't. I I, I don't. I think um, you know it's going to. It's obviously cause some friction in the relationship. Uh, it it could. It might empower uh, Macron to to do so. Um, it might um, spur him to rethink uh, the wisdom of uh, being part of this outdated, overextended, and rather dangerous um, enterprise called NATO. Um, you know, will, will he do it? I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I know that his principal opponent in the forthcoming election, uh, this spring, um, uh, Marie, Marie Le Pen, uh, is a, is a vocal critic of, uh, of the Alliance as well. Um, so time will tell. Um, but I didn't, you know, that was sort of the silver lining of uh, that kind of struck out at me right? Uh, when all this was going down last week. Right. Hey, I'll take it. You know, if it leads to any kind of real dissension between the major powers and the NATO alliance, then I'm for it. This thing is, as you just uh, were saying a few minutes ago, 
30 years out of date. H.W. Bush should have abolished NATO back then. And yes. Think how better and off the world would be right now if he had. Think how better better off our own our own country would be if they Absolutely. decided if they decided to pursue a peace dividend in the aftermath of the Cold War, uh, which they, they didn't do, thanks in large part to uh, people like uh, Richard Cheney, <laughs> who went on then to achieve even uh, more horrific things mm-hmm. 10 years later. So. All right, you guys, that's James Carden. He runs the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. You should sign up for their email list. They send out great stuff every single morning here about what's really going on in our relationship with Russia and all the European powers stuck in the middle and all the rest of it. And this piece is called How AUKUS May Damage NATO. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, uh, as always, for having me. I appreciate it, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.